0: Here we are, again, this week, as every week, the green majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, Canada's most redonkulous environmental news hour. That's, I think, true.
1: I feel like redonkulous is, like, on par with cool beans, as, like, things you said when you were 11 that never need to be said Ah. again.
0: Canada's most cool beans environmental (laughs) podcast radio show, here on CIUT, or your beautiful local community radio station or on your podcast app day in day out green majority green majority green majority we really
1: are here every week we were talking about i feel like i was talking about this a couple weeks ago most shows they're like oh like we're taking a break season one season two no every yeah. week people we're don't here. know it
0: people don't know people don't know this is a non-stop project we got a full hour of environmental punditry from Stefan's Thick Lips. Wow. Gross. Everybody knows he has a very admirable mouth. Um, so we're going to do news, opinion, but also, a few weeks ago, you might have noticed, Stefan and Lauren interviewed four, five out of seven authors?
2: Four out of six?
0: Four out of six authors of the book The End of This World, whose title I've gotten correct,
2: Unlike me, Unlike I get Stephan,
0: it. Stefan, when he did the interview, climate justice in so-called Canada. This is by Angela Luck, Emily Eaton, David Gray, Donald, Joel laforest Crystal Lehman, and Bronwyn Tucker, and they're doing a book launch next week. Yep. Yeah. Right,
2: January thirty first.
0: This is like a every person's manifesto for the just transition.
2: Yeah.
1: Tuesday, January thirty first, from four pm to five thirty. It's a Zoom event, so you can log in from anywhere. And I believe it's being hosted by the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives or the CCPA. So if you are interested in registering for that, um, I believe if you head over to the CCPA's website, which is policyalternatives.ca, you'll be able to register for that there. And then you can also poke around the CCPA's website because they put out a lot of really fantastic stuff. They're a progressive think tank um, with offices all across so-called Canada. They put out a lot of really fantastic material. They also publish a quarterly magazine the Monitor that I'm like obsessed with. It's fantastic. Um, so really good folks at the CCPA. We're also so excited for this book. Um, I, I don't, I feel like, Stefan, this was your idea. So I'm going to let you introduce it.
2: Fair enough. Uh, well, yes, we are, many people are excited about including the people who I ran into when I picked up this book from my local uh, indie bookstore, uh,
0: The Other Story. Your virtue sing knows no Fun. bounds. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you might not know this, listeners, but Stefan's a better person than you are. because He shops <laughs> oh. indie.
2: <laughs> but you know
1: what? I am too, because I also shopped indie. Uh, you if you're go. in Ottawa, check out Perfect Books on Elgin. <laughs> um,
2: the one most important piece of information I should – clarify for folks is that the timing that lauren gave for this was in pacific time if you are on the eastern time it is actually from 7 p.m to 8 30 Uh,
1: that's a really important caveat thank you
2: yeah
0: but still on the 31st still on the 31st 30 days has september april june and november
2: why are we mentioning this book again beyond the fact that it has a book launch and is a great book because we have decided to do a book club this is Green Majority's first ever book club. Dave, if you can find some sort of cool sound to go right now.
0: The sound of someone opening a book and smelling its recycled pages. Mm.
2: So what are we going to do? We are going to read uh, a chapter of the book. It's, it's very readable. There's only seven chapters.
0: It's legible. It's printed.
2: <laughs> it's also legible. It's readable because it's both in printed word but also because it is a great length and and easy to read and so we are going to read a chapter every two weeks or so and and then we're going to talk about it on the show and so folks want to join us in our virtual book club you can read along with us and all you need to do is grab a copy from your indie bookstore the end of this world climate justice in so-called canada
1: or from the library libraries are great too and it'll be stocked right. there, so
2: yeah. And I mean, if it's not stocked, that you can request it, and then they'll buy a copy, and then the other people can read it. So maybe get it from the library. Also, a great idea. Um, but then, yeah. So get it in the, within the next couple of weeks. We'll probably start this in. I'm gonna say our first one. I'm gonna give us a deadline, guys, just to get this kicked off. I'm gonna say we are going to have our first one February 17th for our February 17th show. We are going to talk about the introduction and the first chapters. And then we're going to go through it. And we're going to learn from these wonderful six people. And also we're going to discuss the themes of the book. Because as we discussed, the reason why we want to do this is because it gives a positive vision for the world, which is very much needed. And again, as I briefly mentioned previously, I don't know if I said this earlier, but I went to an indie bookstore to pick up this book. Okay, but like yeah. how indie though? Like how... how- how, yeah, we so in- got it
1: from a little free library. No, those things were like <laughs> secretly neo
2: So indie that when I went to pick it up, uh, one of the people working there brought the books out and said, Stefan, I'm really excited for this book. And then we had a conversation about the book
0: mm, over he, over free
2: kombucha. Uh, I mean, they're indie, they they don't have that much money. That's why we're buying them, we're supporting them. They do not no indie books are giving away free they kombucha. They might have fermented themselves in the back.
1: That's that's wholesome, that's cute. We're not yeah. going to detract from that. Dave. It was, it was, let your brother have his moment in the sun.
2: Like and his, his excitement was in part for this fact that like you know you can't run a, a movement uh on anxiety and you need a positive vision and that's what this book uh provides. Um but why are
1: you excited for this Lauren? That's that's exactly what it was. You totally stole my line and you knew wow. you were doing that cuz <laughs> we were talking about this earlier. No, that's literally it. We're always whether it's within the movement or, or outside, we're always sort of maligning the fact that we don't do a good enough job of communicating what the alternatives are and communicating what it is we're actually working towards as opposed to just working to avoid, right? Everybody knows we're working to avoid climate change. Everybody knows that we're trying to <laughs> execute a managed decline of the fossil fuel industry. But I think a lot of the times people are like, yeah, babe, to what end? And it's like, well, well, to these ends, to, to, to. To the idea that, yes, we're going to sunset the current system that we're working underneath and literally laboring underneath and moving towards something that works for more people um, and improves the lives of many as opposed to just upholding the well-being of a very, very small few. Um, all, I don't know, if you spend even a modicum, amount, a modicum of time online, all you'll see is that like people are, people are in it right now. It's rough. In Ontario, which is where all of us are based out of. It's we're seeing the decline of our healthcare system and the privatization of it. We're seeing the uh, encroachment on green spaces, specifically within the green belt, like things aren't going very well, but we are not locked into that forever and always. There are alternatives that we can work towards um, if, if we like band together and build up effective people power. And this book kind of illustrates, well, it doesn't illustrate it, it discusses. Um, how, how we can do that in the types of, and the types of futures that we would like to be moving towards instead. Um, so, so that's why I really want to spend some time sitting with it. That, and also I promised myself I'd read 30 books this year because I turned 30. Um, and the more like book clubs and discussion circles I have, the, 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 the more likely I am to actually hit that goal. So that's why when Stefan suggested this, I was like, heck yeah, man, let's do it. Cause I need, I need accountability buddies and. You are all listeners, my accountability buddies. Um, If we haven't effectively sold you on the book and you haven't like go back and listen to the interview from a couple weeks ago. And then if you have, and you're like, still like, I don't know, maybe um, I would recommend hopping on over to The Breach, which is a really great um, progressive news agency that uh, cropped up last year, two years ago, maybe. Um, And uh, they have a story that was published, I think, Earlier this week, if you're listening on Friday, um, if you find it, it's called Five Things Canada Could Defund to Pay for an Epic Just Transition. And not only is that a really great article to read, um, but it also is an excerpt of the book. So it'll give you a bit of a taste of the voice and the perspective and the types of arguments that the book's making. Um, So again, that's on uh, breachmedia.ca, Five Things Canada Could Defund to Pay for an Epic Just Transition. And just to give you a bit of a taste, it's like, those things that they're proposing to defund the first police prisons and border security that would result in a surplus of $23 billion. Uh, if we were to defund the military, that's an additional $22 billion, an additional uh, $10 billion in direct subsidies to fossil fuel industry, and $14 billion in government-backed public finance. $98 billion could be generated every year, if we tax the rich and corporations more effectively in so-called Canada. Um, and then if we cut down on highway and aviation expansion, that's at minimum 13 billion. So that's, that's, that's the type of like, this isn't just like, I don't know. Um, I'm the type of person who can ramble for a really long time and ultimately say a lot of nothing. This book isn't a lot of nothing. This book is like, as much as it is like beautiful visions and stories, it's also like facts and numbers and arguments that you can use against those folks that you might be trying to convince of this bright, bright, big, beautiful future we're we're dreaming about. So check out the article on Breach Media, pick up the book or hit up your local library.
0: And it does flow. It does flow. I think the six authors goes a long way because I've read a lot of fact-based literature in my life and these sentences... Uh, just turn the page. You know, it's 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 very good flow it's, on the syntax.
2: It's very readable. This is my whole point.
1: Well, and that's the thing. These are six people who I don't know all of them personally. I've, I believe I've met most of them though. But anyway, they're all folks who are either academics really embedded in these issues, folks with lived experience, folks with organizing and activist experience. Like these, um. These are folks who really, really know their stuff and they come from a really trusted place um, from within their communities and within their lines of expertise. So so they're really trusted voices. So that's another reason that we're dedicating so much time to talking about the book and talking about the concepts explored in it. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for this little project we're launching within the Green Majority, our first book club. And if it goes well, and if we like it, then maybe we'll maybe we'll do other book clubs.
2: Yeah. And then if you have any questions specifically, as you are participating in this book club, it's very possible we get some of the authors to come back and actually answer some of your questions. They said yes to us once. And I feel like we can maybe, if we've got enough questions, bring them back to answer some listener questions uh, at the end of the book club.
1: You can engage with us on Twitter, on Instagram, send us an email, the classic way of getting in touch. Um, there's many, many ways to send us your questions and send us your thoughts and your comments.
0: One yes leads to another. That's business, baby. That's yes, yes, yes. The exponential (laughs) rise of the yes. Is
2: that a quote?
1: Yeah, that's... um... Yeah, that's Donald Trump, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, is that it for this segment? Are we going to go to a break and come back with news?
2: I think that's exactly what we're going to do.
1: Vibes.
0: And with that, we will turn to a music break. Come back with Canada's number one trusted source of environmental news. We're back with the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or on your local community radio stations, or your chosen podcast app. (laughs) Now we're going to get into environmental news. Let's do it. That was not an ask, that was a tell. All right. So we're starting with geoengineering.
2: Oh, yeah. I have many thoughts. Oh, great.
0: Um, A U.S. startup called Making Sunsets made some headlines a few weeks ago for releasing a bunch of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere with balloons without telling any authorities they were doing so. The company wants to sell cooling credits for profit to get the private geoengineering market off the ground. The company released the balloons in northern Mexico and has now caused the Mexican government to announce a ban on solar geoengineering experiments. Am I going to the next one, Dave? Uh, Unprecedented heat waves this year from El Nino. Get ready. So that's El Nino is like a big wind shift in the South Pacific. Is that right? Some kind of wind thing.
1: Whenever I think about El Nino, it reminds me of a line. It's a scene in Bridget Jones's diary and she's interviewing at different news agencies. And the guy asks her, what are your thoughts on the El Nino phenomenon? And she says, if I'm being honest, I think it's a blip. I think Latin music's on the outs, actually. It continues to be funny like 20 years later. Mm.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. The extreme drought in California has been noticeably eased by recent intense rainfall that has lasted for weeks. So there you go. We were freaking out about the California drought. Now they've had a bunch of rainfall.
2: Yeah, although definitely one of the examples where the extreme rain, also bad. uh, listen
0: Listen to you right now.
1: Well, and was that the extreme rainfall that meant that like, I don't know, at the Golden Globes a few weeks ago, there were like several celebrities that couldn't go because they were quarantined and well not quarantined, but they were like barricaded in their homes because like the National Guard was like, you can't leave there's flooding. So like, that's what happens when there's a drought, and then there's flooding, the ground isn't prepared to absorb. All of that moisture, and then that's how you get flash floods, and that's how that happens. In case anybody's yeah. wondering,
2: <laughs> yeah. In case you're wondering why Bridget Jones didn't make the Golden Globes, it's because of global warming twice. But what I really want to talk about is this first story because I'm very glad we covered it because I, I saw it a couple of weeks ago, and you know, every once in a while we get a story out there that like it doesn't doesn't catch a lot of news, but like mentions it, and you see it, and then you think about it, and you're like, this could be one of the stories that like. You know, three years down the road is like the thing that destroys us all. You know, it's like the it's like the little news chyron on the bottom that uh, during a during a the beginning of a horror movie that's meant to foreshadow just complete destruction. Because I cannot explain how bad an idea it is to allow private companies to send sulfur into the atmosphere. One of my main worries before I knew this story was that a state would do this. Um, because it is likely one of the ways that you could geoengineer the Earth to cool. Um, History has shown that after large volcanic eruptions, the amount of sulfur in the atmosphere has led to sort of global cooling for like a year or two following. And so this idea of pumping a ton of sulfur into the atmosphere has been in the geoengineering range of possibilities for quite some time. So that was a fear, because I really wasn't sure how a... How the global community could stop a country, especially you know a country sort of you know hit it by heat waves um, that was like, look I need the we're, our people are dying right now, we need to cool the earth, we're gonna do this. It would be very hard, I think, for the national community to find a way to really stop that beyond honestly invading that country. But the idea that a private company wants to do this and wants to sell quote unquote cooling credits is... So far beyond that, that what I thought was a bad case scenario, because now we're talking about a private company that a is going to theoretically could charge and you could get like, we'll talk about carbon credits later, but you could imagine a shell or a, you know, uh, a big fossil fuel company to basically for even decide that they're not even going to bother trying to reduce carbon. They're just going to buy cooling credits and skip that fact. So now we're just pumping tons of carbon and sulfur into the atmosphere as if that's going to make this situation any better. And we don't know all the impacts of sulfur in the atmosphere. Like one of the big concerns is that it will mess up where water falls. So to go back to, you know, California's, uh, Uh, Rainfall issues, you know, it becomes a concern of like, if you pump a bunch of sulfur in the southern hemisphere, maybe the northern hemisphere gets dry for the next 10 years. And that's potentially possible because we only have these historical records of these gigantic um, Volcano uh, volcano eruptions as any examples that we have to go on. And so... It's just we should immediately stop any single private company trying to do this or trying to geo-engineer, geoengineer the Earth at all. There are way, way, way too many risks, and the incentives are truly terrible across the board
1: we're speaking of like non-state actors we're going to be talking about later on in the show like when a non-state actor tries to get involved in like climate solutions and how it like totally backfires so so we'll dig into that because let's be real we're never a fan of like technocrats and tech bros getting involved we continue to mess with the planet and then we think that the way out of that is to continue to mess even more with the planet just in the opposite direction and it's like have we it's like we have flown too close to the sun so many times our wax wings keep melting we just keep falling and we just keep thinking you know what the solution is more wax more feathers like it's oh my gosh oh my gosh Icarus. The,
2: the, well, the one other fear that you have to have with this is the fact that if it does work let's like presume it works and and it works you know actually relatively well which neither are guaranteed at all. The other thing we have to realize, and this goes back to El Nino, because El Nino is you know it comes in, it comes out. When El Nino is happening, temperatures rise by an extra you know you know percentage like or extra amount, and and then it leaves again. And so they're really worried that it's going to compound with climate change, you know, and make things much worse for the next couple of years. But this could be even worse because sulfur doesn't last in the atmosphere very long. It lasts for like a couple years, maybe. And so if you're if you're if you successfully create a system where you've reduced warming but not reduced carbon because you're doing it this way and then some and then you cut off the sulfur for any reason say 5 10 15 20 years down the road you're going to have all the cumulative effects of the of the carbon you're still emitting without the negative effects of the sulfur so you're going to see a jump a huge jump in emission in in temperature that we could be even less prepared for Right? Like the moment you start creating, adding a new thing to the system, it has to either keep staying in the system, which could have any number of bad things. Like sulfur is not a great gas. Like, let's not delude ourselves here.
0: Um Don't tell me what is and isn't a great gas. Huh? All right,
2: fine. Sulfur is a perfectly fine gas. But anyways, the the point I'm making is that like there there are so many other layers to this that could make things go horribly wrong that we have to be so, so, so careful with it. And Probably never do it. That's my general take. Let's r- remove carbon and not pump sulfur. Like, that's a recipe for some version of a disaster.
0: Forgive them for trying to make money for saving the world, Stefan.
2: I will not forgive them. I truly think these people are worse than almost anyone. Like, hey, and not not only that their name is way too draconian. I'm sorry. But their name of making sunsets is Literally sounds like a company that destroys the world. I, it, they're Let's make some sunsets. Already, yeah, sunsetting the, our population. Sunsetting the human experience. That's what you are doing.
1: <laughs> if, again, because I'm locked into like sci-fi movie headspace, like I'm going to say like B-list sci-fi movie headspace, making sunsets sounds like the name of a company in a Twilight Zone episode that like euthanizes grandma. Mm, like no. that's what that sounds like to me. Yeah. Anyway, we don't need to talk about euthanasia <laughs> right now. That's not fun on a Friday. Um, What I was going to say, though, is I think Verso published a book specifically about geoengineering last year. And I cannot remember the title. I cannot remember the author. But if if we're going to start compiling a list of potential book club books, I feel like a geoengineering one could be a good one for us to to touch base with.
0: And those fleshy eyelids of grandma are slowly sunsetting upon her beautiful irises. Nope, she's wide awake. She's dead. (laughs) Oh, God. All right. Ottawa is mandating 20% of new car sales to be electric by 2026, and 60% of new car sales to be electric by 2030. Um, Or they're signaling that they will mandate this. A new lithium mine has been approved for Quebec, and the International Institute for Sustainable Development is warning that adoption of electric vehicles may begin to rise exponentially to the point where Canada's oil sands eventually reach a tipping point and become obsolete overnight. All major political parties in Alberta are against a just transition away from oil and gas, even though it appears that a large majority of Albertans might support transitioning away from oil and gas.
2: Yeah, so very quickly, just on the mandates of uh, electric vehicles, this is a weak sauce mandate. Uh, that's a technical term, just like cool beans is a technical term. Um, because, firstly, electric vehicles will not save us. That should be noted. And if the only plan put forward to reduce Canada's uh, immense transportation emissions is to rely on batteries over combustion engines, we're in deep trouble. But if we are going to rely on electric vehicles, which, you know, at this point, it very much seems like we are going to, given that the federal government doesn't seem to have any plan for improved train travel or bus services, for example, then the standards should at least be ambitious. To put this in perspective, EV sales jumped from 2.5% of all sales in 2019 to 11.3% in 2022. And the jump between 2021 and 2022 was over 5% in and of itself, meaning that the world is on target to hit Trudeau Trudeau's liberals' goals as early as 2024, and that's not even considering the last point you made about from the, about the IISD's prediction that EVs could begin to see exponential growth and take over the market even faster. And, like, again, I'm not really an EV booster and would vastly prefer to see money going to electric or pedal-assist bikes and trains. But this policy strikes me as just a meaningless window dressing for a government that barely understands meaningless window dressing. And it's annoying that's it that's all i got horn
1: Whereas, okay so my concern it's it's really it's it's gratifying and and awesome to hear that ev sales rose so much um ha- or have risen so much in the last couple years and are and are predicted to continue to rise but i will say the thing that like and i mean this is anecdotally so like take it with like the biggest heaping pile of salt in the entire world but when i speak to people who are interested in buying vehicles in my own life, whether it's friends or family or coworkers, one of the big problems that continues to come up time and time again is it remains difficult to purchase an electric vehicle if that is something you are interested in purchasing. Um, And I'm sure, sure, some of it is maybe supply chain issues that have drummed up over the last couple of years as a result of COVID. But I think a lot of it is um, the fact that car sellers dealers oh my gosh that's the word I'm looking for car dealerships often do not keep electric vehicles in stock and they don't often promote them the same way that they do another vehicle and yes you're maybe seeing a commercial on tv for an electric vehicle but that electric vehicle still does need to be available on the floor of the dealership if you are interested in purchasing it. Well, it doesn't have to be, but I imagine the average buyer going to purchase a car would like to see the car that they're going to be purchasing. Maybe not the exact one, if it's going to be ordered for the next year or whatever, but like they want to see an example of it within the showroom. And as long as car dealerships don't continue or don't, I don't know, really ramp up the ways in which they're promoting electric vehicles as options and working a little bit harder to source larger numbers of them. I like, there is part of me that again if 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 it's if it's predicted that these targets will be met that's fantastic I'm clearly talking out of my ass and don't know what I'm saying but it's like it it seems hard for me to believe that we're going to be able to hit these targets unless there are some mandates being put in place that require these dealerships to like really ramp up the numbers that they have in stock does that make sense
2: No for sure yeah it definitely takes Like, it's hard to buy one right now because there's just not enough coming off the lot. And, you know, hopefully that ramps up as demand ramps up. But it definitely remains, you know, and of course, there isn't a, like, for anyone I would know, there isn't a sort of secondary market that's super strong yet. And so you can't buy used electric vehicles super often or easily. And that's, I think, when you really start seeing them to really replace cars on the road, right? Like the moment that you can buy a used one and be able to have, expect it to you know, continue to work and, and be useful for you is the moment when a lot of people start being able to buy into the electric vehicle market. Because, like, how many people do we know who are buying new cars, right? Not many.
1: Exactly. It's like it, n- nobody I know buys new cars. They may be buying new ish. They may be buying a car that's a couple of years old, but they're not buying one fresh off the lot. So that's exactly right. Is that until we start seeing them, Oh God, I hate using trickle down um, into, into the secondhand market, then it's, yeah, it's hard to see how these, how these goals are going to be met in a meaningful way. But, but again, I don't actually know the numbers. So clearly I'm, I don't know. This is yeah. just me pontificating.
2: What I what I learned from my brief review of some of the numbers was that Canada is actually quite behind most of the world on electric vehicles, and so these. So what I quoted was world statistics, and the fact that Canada is a bit behind means that it's a little more ambitious for Canada to try to do this, but it's still sad. And of course, the bet that's actually being made here is that the Canadian government really wants other people to keep driving gas vehicles because they want to keep selling oil sands but they want us to keep to switch over as quickly as possible electric vehicles because it means less imports and so like for the canadian government perspective they want canadians to drive evs but the world to keep driving gas which is not a good look on the on our part generally speaking
1: No, no. And I realized the thing that I think I'd be curious about, and I'm sure if I were to, if I were to look at the EV plan, it would dig into it, but I'd be really curious to see what plans look like to roll out charging stations across the country. Cause as it is, it's still pretty piecemeal. It's like a lot of them are like Tesla charging stations or like one will be installed at your local library or your bank or whatever. And it's like, what, what does it look like to encourage, um, current gas stations to install vehicle chargers? Anyway, again, I'm sure that's all detailed somewhere. I just need to take three minutes and look it up.
2: Yeah. Last set of news. Okay, seven.
0: (laughs) Yes? I'm the one who says the news is continuing. All right, okay, sorry. Your happy little, go lucky, giddy little tone is inappropriate for the serious news.
2: I mean, the rest of the news is bad, so.
0: Stefan's favorite man on Earth, Mr. Joseph Robinette Biden, is as bad as Donald Trump, period. (laughs) No, he's an adorable man. He's implementing border laws that reject everybody trying to enter the U.S. from Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua. This is news from a few weeks ago. Uh, If they don't already have a financial sponsor in the U.S. and go through a background check... So this means expanding the number of people that are already being rejected because so many people are already there. Um, And so Biden's actually using Trump's law to do this as well. That's what he said he was going to repeal. He's using Trump's harsh border law to be like, no, I'm I'm going to actually reject even more people. Um, Biden is also moving ahead with Trump's plan to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and move the U.S. embassy there. This is in accord with Israel's new government, which is greatly expanding its persecution of Palestinians and theft of Palestinian land. Canadian uh, government has also welcomed the new uh, Israeli government. So we like them, too. Uh, Human Rights Watch has issued a report attacking Canada for its indefensible treatment of indigenous peoples. Canada and 325 First Nations have reached a deal for reparations for Canada's genocidal Christian school system, known as residential schools. The settlement is for $2.8 billion. Three fishermen from the Sibignagati First Nation have been acquitted of illegal fishing by a Nova Scotian provincial court. Mi'kmaq nations have treaty agreements saying they can fish whenever they want within certain limits, but Canada has been arresting them anyway. And the ruling will open up opportunities for more Mi'kmaq nations to establish fisheries according to their own laws.
1: Um, so the story that I wanted to comment on um, was the one with Biden moving ahead with Trump's plan. And we could spend a gazillion hours chastising Biden for this and talking about how depressing it is. Um, but I think the the only thing I want to leave listeners with today is that if this is something that makes you upset, um, border... Um, And like migration rights are issues that are also very present in this colonial nation on this side of of that, I don't know, imaginary border. Um, And if that's something that you are interested in engaging on, Migrant Workers Alliance for Change has been leading the way on a regularization campaign for several years now, I believe, um, in which they're pushing for status for all. Um, so if that's something you want to engage on this week, um, actually, I know it'll be Friday by the time this comes out, but this week will have been a big week for that because it's um, when the cabinet retreat has been taking place in, in Hamilton. So they were really trying to make sure it was on the agenda at that cabinet retreat. We'll see how successful that was by the end of this week. But um, if you check out their website, Migrant Workers Alliance for Change, look into their regularization campaign, see how you can get involved. These aren't issues that just plague the states and it is too easy for us in so-called canada to kind of like look down our nose at how brutal it is down there um regardless of whether the president is donald trump or joe biden but we we have those same issues of injustice and inequality here so if it's something that gets you riled up engage with it um migrant workers alliance for change are doing really great work that way as are no one is illegal um so check out those check out those community groups if if you are interested
2: yeah and just to, to jump off that the the thing to remember, and I think one of the most things that I've sort of learned over time in my last 10, 12 years of sort of being involved in climate movement is just how directly the climate crisis is not caused by sort of humanity generally. Like one of the things you'll often hear about is sort of like this idea that like, oh, humans are bad for the planet. And so you get this sort of very... Malthusian or sort of overarching critique that humans are the are the entire the problem, Where, whereas much more clearly, the sort of colonial and um, sort the, of the colonial project and the and what's the word I'm looking for here about prisons? It's another word, c word for prisons. Carceral. 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 Yeah. Um, so the, the you know the colonial project and the carceral state. Carceral. Carceral state. Okay, the colonial project and the carceral state end up being so much more directly mapped onto the climate crisis and and where we're at in a lot of the problems we have today. you know it's not the same to say all oh, humanity is bad when you can much more clearly map on the you know exploitation of the of the land and and of people to these to these two projects you know to the projects of displacement and and genocide of of you know indigenous peoples across across turtle island and the world, and also the shift from slavery to sort of what is basically modern day slavery uh, with prisons and in prison workers that we've talked about often in the show. And all of these things so clearly map onto, you know, where the fundamental problems that we face are, that it's not really useful to blame all of humanity as as a, as a, as a, as a, as a unit, because that obfuscates, I think, the actual real problems. And so these stories sort of all speak to that kind of, ways that we're seeing the colonial project continue. And one of the reasons why we're not seeing progress on really taking climate change seriously is because we have... The love affair of the, of colonization continues far too strongly in our nations, uh, in especially, honestly, here in Canada, given what our mining companies do around the world. And so, like, yeah, when you hear people sort of try to focus on the the overall population or get to a, oh, but every there's too many people, etc., Push back and realize that it's much more specific than that, and it's you know it's that's a that is a generalization that actually leads to obfuscation of the realities.
0: Yeah, I guess we're still out here claiming things for the crown, right?
2: Yeah, I mean anything you do, right? And in in many ways, like the mining companies that go around the world, they're Canadian mining companies, and so ultimately, theoretically, they are basically going around claiming those mining sites uh, for for the. Un- uncrowned oh, King wow. of England, exactly, yeah. Has he been coronated yet? No, I don't think so. Can we watch that live on the show as a little show watchy-watchy? little watchy
1: Oh my along? God, yeah. Well, I'll wake up at four in the morning, <laughs> drink some Earl Grey or English breakfast or whatever.
0: Look how effing glamorous this is.
1: Yeah, last Actually, week. I could fuck with a scone.
0: And now we will return to a music break and come back Talking again about carbon offsets, and inter- the international oil oligarchy—those <laughs> <laughs> fossil fools yeah. in like power or whatever—the Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. Featuring great shows such as Tech Won't Save Us, Press Progress's Sources, and the Forgotten Corner Podcast. Thank you for listening. Okay, and we've returned with The Green Majority. Canada's most boisterous environmental news project. Um, Okay. Carbon offsets?
2: Yeah. So we promised uh, a deeper discussion of carbon offsets on last week's show. And so here it is. Uh, Dave's got some new facts, and then we're going to talk about carbon offsets for a bit because. New facts.
0: That's what we should should rename the show New Facts. Okay, so it recently came out, as we mentioned last week, that 94% of the rainforest carbon offsets provided by VERA, VERA being the world's largest offset provider, are worthless and meaningless because they found that of the 95 million tons of carbon credits claimed for this rainforest project, only 5.5 million tons of emissions were actually reduced. So most of those carbon credits are essentially fake. Um, as part of their quote-unquote decarbonization plan, the huge Dutch oil company Shell is planning to buy $450 million worth of carbon offsets. Uh, this is equal to half the current market. Wow. So they're multiplying the, the market by 1.5 with this uh, endeavor. Uh, In order to appear to be complying with the Dutch court that ordered them to cut their emissions in half by 2030. So a Dutch court was like, Shell, you have to cut your emissions in half. And they're like, all right, we'll do some offsets. Not as simple as that, but we can imagine it is. Sure, It's a new fact. Uh, It also turns out that Shell has several employees officially advising the offset company, Vera, And The Guardian reports, in addition to this, quote, Vera's former director of programs is a carbon offsetting manager at Shell, while the oil major's former head of nature-based solutions has just co-founded a new carbon credits rating agency that helps companies find supposedly high-quality credits with a Vera advisory group member. So Shell and Vera are sort of uh, switching people back and forth. Um, And the former governor of the Bank of England, another favorite of Steffen's, Mr. Mark Carney, uh, whose Green Bankers Alliance has now completely failed because none of the banks in it were willing to go green, has also been a part of a strategy of promoting offsets. Um, The Canadian branch of Shell, meanwhile, has been trying to convince the public that they're going carbon neutral, even though their new president helped direct the Fraser Institute for three years which D. Smog describes as, quote, one of the most prominent climate crisis denial think tanks in Canada. And this comes as the biggest oil companies in the Western world, which includes Shell, are making more money than they ever have before.
1: So with this story, I think what we've got here isn't necessarily a case of, oh my God, no one could have predicted this, but more so a case of, oh my God, everybody predicted this. Like this is, this scandal with vera is um it's actually for what it's worth listeners should 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 check it out um you can read the story on the guardian it was also a joint effort with a number of other publications so there's there's a whole lot of really really good information out there if you want to do a bit of a deep dive yourself but um but yeah so it's from what i understand vera is like it was like understood to be the standard setter. They worked with companies like some of the ones listed were like Disney and Shell and Gucci. Um, And um, basically, yeah, uh, they were kind of like the world standard for it. They also had mechanisms through which they approved a lot of other companies um, offset. So they were sort of like not a regulator, but um, I guess kind of like rubber stamped. A lot of them provided a bit of provided a bit of backing that way. And from what I can understand the way it theoretically works. Let me see. I, I picked out my, I picked out a few quotes for myself to try to make it under to try to make it understandable. So this is directly quoted from the Guardian. These aren't my words. The organizations that set up and run these projects produce their own forecasts of how much deforestation they will stop using Vera's rules. The predictions are assessed by a Vera approved third party. And if accepted are then used to generate the credits that companies can buy and use to offset their own carbon emissions. For example, If an organization estimates its project will stop 100 hectares of deforestation, it can use a VERA-approved formula to convert that into 40,000 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent of saved carbon emissions in a dense tropical forest if no deforestation takes place, although the formula varies according to Habitat and other factors. Those saved emissions can then be bought by a company and applied to its own carbon reduction targets. But like Dave said underneath this mechanism, 94% of those credits for these projects should not have been approved by Vera at all and should not have been made available for purchase. So we have a carbon offset market that is built upon a, like, a house of cards basically. And again, this isn't anything that people haven't been predicting and saying would be the case for a long time because from what I understand, the way that these carbon offset markets work is also in line with something called red plus, which I first became aware of within cop spaces and I was hearing indigenous groups and indigenous people saying like, hey, like red plus is 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 BS. It's not going to save us. this isn't like this isn't going to provide a legitimate. Way to offset your carbon dioxide emissions, and now we're seeing this play out in the free market space. When again, you've got technocratic tech bro types who are insisting they have the solutions that will allow these companies to continue to make product and carry on business as usual. When when this is not the case at all. Um, again, another quote. One last quote, and then I'll throw to you, Steph. This was a, a Cambridge professor who I thought summarized it really nicely. It's safe to say that there are strong discrepancies between what we're calculating and what exists in their meaning Vera's databases. And I think it's a matter for concern and further investigation. I think at the long-term, what we want is a consensus set of methods which are applied across all sites. And all I can think of then is like, well, yeah, I would hope so. Like, again, the fact that like this is a market that is completely unregul- Well, it appears to be completely unregulated with nobody sort of like I don't know managing a bottom line here aside from these companies that we are trusting to be benevolent because we are trusting that that is in their best interest and our best interest is like so foolhardy it's wild and again like these have lots of the findings of this study have really wide wide reaching ramifications not just because like for instance Shell is relying on them to reduce their carbon emissions by 50% but because these same types of conversations about carbon markets and offsets are playing out in that COP space and there are currently um, world leaders and negotiators who are trying to figure out a way to take a carbon market like this and expand it and regularize it that's not the right word expand it and normalize it around the world so it's offsets don't work is the bottom line
2: yeah
1: <laughs> is basically what we need to get across here
2: yeah I, well and I, I think there's like to, to jump off that the other part of it that has to be understood is even if this wasn't the case. Like, even if ninety-four percent of these uh, rainforest carbon offsets did successfully actually capture some carbon, and you did prevent deforestation, and you've now sold these to Shell or a bank that is coming now that is now able to claim that it is you know that it is doing well and being more carbon neutral, that only lasts for as long as that is true. Meaning that even like because because the, 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 the a similar thing occurred within the more regulated carbon market that California runs and that's a state sponsored carbon market uh it actually means that carbon you know is is being managed and there's m- even more strict rules my understanding within the California system to determine what can get count as an offset and what can't count as an offset and then what happened was on like completely not being anyone's fault, some of these forests burned down because there was a very big fire. And that released all of the carbon that was being sequestered by that by that part of that forest. And that could happen here. That could happen with any of these solutions. Like any of these offset solutions that are not, that are just trapping it in something else, especially in, or any of these offset solutions that are not reducing the amount of actual carbon we burn, you know, when you think about carbon markets that reduce carbon, more often than not, what's happening is that someone is reducing carbon, like actually releasing less carbon because they've made their, you know, say their factory more efficient and they're selling those carbon credits to somebody else. And so some carbon was actually reduced and hopefully and will continue to be reduced. But when you talk about natural settings like this, this is really most often people and especially conservation groups. So briefly, let me go back to conservation groups have a significant problem here because they are often looking for ways to find new revenue sources and selling carbon credits increasingly is becoming a way that they see as to gain more revenue and more funding to carry on their work. But you cannot guarantee that your space will consistently hold carbon and it sort of has to hold carbon forever.
0: Well, nor can you guarantee that, uh, the forest would have been cut down if you didn't sell it as a carbon offset. Yeah. It's so like a, a conservation company can just have a forest and they're essentially holding it hostage if they begin selling it as a carbon offset because they're saying, this will be cut down if you don't give us money.
2: Yeah, and, and it has to be that forever, right? Like, the thing about this is that once you release carbon, carbon lasts in the atmosphere for 100 years. So I guess you have to keep it for 100 years or else you won't get that same amount of reduction. And so more often than not, I think these carbon schemes are probably actually leading to more carbon being in the atmosphere because people are choosing the cheaper option. And these companies will choose the cheapest option to, to allow themselves to be considered carbon neutral. And so if the cheapest option is to, quote unquote, protect land or to not cut things down, they won't on the back end change their supply systems or do other things to get that work done. And so they will continue releasing the same amount of missions and they won't change those things because this is a cheaper option. And then you come back and find out that, you know, 94 percent of them are worthless. And it's like, whoopsie, I guess we didn't do that now. And like, what are the chances that the companies that bought these are now going to go and pay double to actually do other work? They are not that that those have been emitted, that damage has been done, and they're not going to go back and do it. And so we cannot rely on these systems that absorb carbon, all we can rely on is systems that reduce emissions, because that's the problem.
1: Yeah. And because like, like you said, bottom line, like these are companies, these are corporations, their first concern, we say this literally every week, I'm sure people are so annoyed, their first and only concern is to, if they're a public company, increase the value of shareholder dollars And if they're not a public company, it's to continue to make so much profit that when they do eventually go public, they can charge a bazillion dollars a share. Like that is their concern. They can say that their concern is saving the planet. They can say their concern is protecting the rainforest. It's not. It's to make them money and as much money in as short a period of time as is physically possible. What they ended up finding, and and again, this is a it's kind of a hard concept for me to wrap my brain around. So I apologize if I don't explain it very well, but what they found is that in a lot of instances with these with these various like forest saving projects, um, when they were selling these projects, to potential offset buyers they were overestimating the risk to that stretch of forest by something like 400 percent so they were saying like oh my god if you don't buy this offset this forest is going to be slashed and burned and destroyed and it's going to be terrible when in actuality like that that apparently 400 percent of the time wasn't the case so you are in effect saving and sequestering no carbon because or like no additional carbon because nothing was going to happen to that forest in the first place. From what I understand, that's a gross oversimplification, but that's the best way I can, I can explain it.
0: All right. And that does it for the green majority this week. And we're going to return next week with a heinously nude Stefan Hostetter. Wow. Wow.
1: you're lucky. This is a an audio medium, <laughs> and then none of us have to look. No, the only thing that listeners can be sure of is that we will return next week with more bummer stories.
2: Yeah, and you can. Yeah, exactly. All we have you more have an interview stories. lined up. Or what? I do have an interview lined up. Um, the, do you want me to pitch it? I was going to tell people. I don't, people to, I don't I'm, know. I'm going to tell people to go to check out the book launch once more uh, and join our book club. Uh, the end. The,
0: the end of this world.
2: The end of this world. Uh, the
0: start of your life. This uh, the book is still unwritten. Um, are you singing. Feel Natasha the rain on feel the rain on your skin. Yeah. Okay. Only you can let it in.
2: At January thirty first. Uh, check it out. Seven p.m. The end of this world book launch. Worth it. Join the book club. See y'all soon. Peace.